From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Racism is real. Race is an ideology, not a biological fact. According to historian Nell Irvin Painter, our guest today, we chose her book, The History of White People, to read together for our series, Turn the Page. To be white is very often not to see yourself as raced, to see yourself as an individual, and not to grapple with the meanings of racial identity. This is changing right now, and I think it's a good thing that it's changing. Those of us who are Black are used to going through life feeling hyper-visible, feeling that people are likely always seeing us as Black people. White race doesn't work that way. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. News this week that there would be no murder charges in the police killing of Breonna Taylor reignited protests around the country, including here in Colorado. When the demonstrations over police brutality and racial justice began in May, we asked some thought leaders in Colorado for reading recommendations to put this reckoning in context. Adrian Miller, head of the Colorado Council of Churches and soul food historian, suggested reading The History of White People by fellow historian Nell Irvin Painter, who's now retired from Princeton, where she also led the program in African-American studies. I asked Adrian Miller why he chose this book. As an African-American man in this country, uh, race is often in my mind, and I try to keep up on the latest reading. And so I, I saw in a lot of discussions, both in academia and in in other circles, this idea that race was a social construct. But nobody ever explained that. And I wanted to know, Uh, what what does that mean that race is made up? So that made me pick up the book. And it was the first one to really kind of delve into this idea of how race is just really this made up thing that we give meaning. So we decided to make the history of white people the next selection for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters, our reading circle. And author Nell Irvin Painter agreed to be our guest. Her book and our conversation on today's show with other readers is full of aha moments about whiteness and about how intertwined American thinking is with race thinking. Adrian Miller is my co-host today, and for transparency's sake, since first recommending this book to us, he became a member of CPR's board of directors. Well, Adrian, why don't you lead us into our first question for Professor Painter? Well, Professor Painter, with that backdrop, I want to know, what motivated you to write this book? (laughs) This book took 10 years to research and write, so I started it really at the turn of the 21st century when the Russians were bombing Chechnya. And I saw a picture in the front page of the New York Times of Grozny, which is the capital of Chechnya in the Caucasus. And it looked like Berlin in 1945. And I'm thinking, why are white Americans called Caucasians? And the answer comes from the University of Göttingen in Germany. And it has to do with the image of human beauty, which in the late 18th century, uh, scholars thought that the most beautiful people in the world were Caucasians, in this case, Georgians, the South Caucasus as opposed to the North Caucasus. So I was just trying to find out that answer. And I did. But there was a lot more to it. (laughs) There was a lot more to it. Yeah. 
It is fascinating to me how much perceptions of beauty, which you would think of as just so subjective, but how much beauty plays a role in what race is and how races are deemed better than or less than. Yeah. Yeah, you say beauty is so subjective, but that gives you a clue about the meanings of race because the meanings of race are subjective. I mean, beauty is partly biological, it's true. Beauty is related to bodily health, the image of youth and health. But beyond that, it's so much more. And that so much more is related to race and it's like race. Professor, you write that America is a society founded in the era that invented the very idea of race. Yes, invented the idea of race as not just horses, but people. So before the Enlightenment of the 18th century, the way you found out about truth was religion. And what the Enlightenment did was substitute science for religion. And science was about ranking people, classifying people and rocks and frogs and birds, everything. Taxonomy is the great science of the Enlightenment. And that meant also classifying people. So in the middle of the 18th century, Linnaeus, the father of taxonomy, said that there were four different kinds of people and he related them to places, America, Africa, Europe, and Asia. And then in the end of the century, George Friedrich Blumenbach, the father of physical anthropology, said there were five varieties of mankind. And Blumenbach's idea of the five is still widely accepted. And he added Malay, Polynesian, basically. So the idea that you can count up the number of varieties or races comes out of the Enlightenment, comes out of the 18th century. But even Blumenbach, who was this great scientist, said, well, there's no agreement on the number of races or how many even white races there are. And there has never been agreement on the number of races, the number of white races, or even how you decide. In the Enlightenment era and the 19th century, a very common way was, was of measuring heads. So you could measure this part of the head with that part of the head or inside the head, but the various ways of measuring never gave a definitive definition. I mean, it is fascinating. Adrian, I don't know if you had this impression. Race scientists, and I will put that in quotation marks. <laughs> no, don't put that in quotation don't marks. Don't put that in quotation marks. Tell me why. Because to it put it in It seems like such pseudoscience, you know? It seems like pseudoscience to us. Right, Adrian? Right. But it was science at the time. I mean, there's plenty of junk science. There's no question of that. But in my book, I only talk about race science as seen by people who were credentialed scientists at the time. This is not junk science. I mean, for us now, it's not useful. It is junk science now. But my book is an intellectual history. It's not a history of poppycock 
or the crazy things that white people do or the terrible things that white people do. It's an intellectual history of the various constructions of whiteness centered on American whiteness. I don't know if you had this impression, Adrian, reading the book, but it did seem that race scientists were obsessed with skulls. I mean, I think that mm -hmm. there's there's one of these researchers, of these scientists, who dies with like a thousand skulls in, yeah. his, in his possession. Yeah, Jan Friedrich Blumenbach had this fantastic skull collection in Göttingen in Germany. And uh, Samuel Elliott Morton in Philadelphia also had a big collection. So to collect skulls was to announce yourself as a scientist with strong bona fides. Mm. Well, I have a contemporary question to ask yeah. you. And this is the writer in me <laughs> emerging. But uh, what are your thoughts about capitalizing the words black and white when applied to people? And um, you know, what does that tell us about race as a social construct? Well, you answered the question right there that the matter that we are even talking about whether or not to capitalize tells us that this is a social construct. I have actually written an op-ed and actually done a little video for the Washington Post in which I say, now that we have pretty much agreed on capitalizing black, we should also capitalize white. And the reason that I say that is not because I want to give props to the white nationalists who've probably been doing this all along. And the white nationalists, I think, are the main reason for not capitalizing white. Well, we say we want to capitalize black out of respect. I'm not saying I want to capitalize white out of respect. I want to capitalize white to make it visible as the kind of construct you're pointing to, Adrian. Okay. That Black is a construct that we respect, but white is a construct that we need to respect as a construct. Mm -hmm. So black and white are not symmetrical as American identities. To be white is very often not to see yourself as raced, to see yourself as an individual and not to grapple with the meanings of racial identity. This is changing right now, and I think it's a good thing that it's changing, that masses of white Americans are grappling with what it means to have a racial identity. So those of us who are Black are used to going through life feeling hyper-visible, feeling that people are likely always seeing us as Black people. White race doesn't work that way. And so by capitalizing white, you nudge whiteness into visibility. And that's why I say capitalize black and capitalize white. The current AP style, which is what guides so much of journalism, yes. is now to capitalize black, to capitalize yes. indigenous. Yes. But white remains lowercase. Right. And you're making an argument. Uh, yes. that change. Mm. Professor, you write about how the definition of whiteness in the United States has expanded over the generations. <laughs> that is to say, who's considered white now is not who was considered white at the founding of this uh, country. Wait, wait, wait. There are two things going on here. There's white American identity, which folds beauty, but also power and wealth. 
education and so forth, the kinds of qualities that we associate with white, those qualities have enlarged. However, the idea of what white race is has changed in the sense that it used to be in the 19th century, there were more than one white race. So that for instance, poor Irish who were considered white, but they were considered part of an inferior white race. They were white in the sense that adult men could vote, sometimes even before applying for citizenship. Poor Italian men right off the boat could vote. They were considered white, but they were considered part of an inferior white race, either the Northern Italian race or the Southern Italian race. And this is why you use the term very specifically, the plural, white races. Says, yes. And so the idea that there's only one white race is something that arises in the middle of the 20th century. Mm. And it has to do with politics. How so? Do, do you think that the expansion of that, the inclusion of that, was in opposition to people of color? No, it was in opposition to Nazis. Oh. Tell us more. The ideas about racial hierarchies and who deserved to be considered a citizen, who was racialized, those ideas in the early 20th century sometimes inspired people in Germany who became Nazis. So there's this shared body of ideas, for instance, anti-Semitism, that said that Jews were a separate race from Saxons or Nordics. That became really dangerous and deadly in the 1930s and the 1940s. And Americans who subscribed to this kind of racialist thinking said, whoa, wait a minute. So anthropologists who were the people who told us what we needed to know about people in the middle of the 20th century said, Jews are not a race. There are only three real human races. They're Caucasoid, Mongoloid, and Negroid, pretty much in that order. And that is what we have inherited. However, if you could go just past the first inklings of that, we get all complicated with what is the meaning of ethnicity? Are people of Central or South American descent or Puerto Rican descent, are they raced or are they ethnicities? So, we, you know, we have all this going on now with the onslaught of new immigrants. And immigration has always been of crucial importance in race thinking. You know, one thing I loved about your book, uh, Professor Painter, is how you bring in these key figures to move the narrative along. Mm -hmm. And some of them are quite unexpected, at least for me. <laughs> so uh, why is Ralph Waldo Emerson, the transcendentalist and essayist, such a key figure in your work? Ralph Waldo Emerson is key because he popularized ideas about white race in the middle of the 19th century. He was probably the most eloquent, dare I say, articulate American of his generation. And he wrote a book called English Traits in the 1850s that lays out his thinking 
which is a kind of elevation and distillation of much of what educated Americans were thinking. And for him, there was the best race, which was Saxons, which was his. And he had some other things to say about other people as inferior beings. And he's such an important figure in American letters that I really needed to deal with him. And so he gets three chapters. I mean, the other surprising figures, or maybe not surprising, if you know your history, is how big a role Jefferson plays in the furtherance of the idea of Anglo-Saxons as yeah. as, as superior. Yes. And I think it's Teddy Roosevelt, who you call a rather seminal race thinker yeah. in this country. Not people we necessarily associate with that kind of thinking. That's right. One of the great things about the moment that we're living in now is the willingness to further educations. So not knowing about Jefferson's thinking about race. And he was so attached to the pre, um, well, the medieval, the Beowulf English that he actually collected. And he, he studied early English uh, he was really kind of rabid on that. I was really surprised to read about that. But people, I think, are willing now to learn things that had been obscured, that had been willful ignorance. Michelle Berggren in Denver says, where did the Nazis come up with the notion of the Aryan race, combined with their knowledge of the history of the Germanic tribes? Okay, Aryan comes out of linguistics in the early 19th century. Uh, it comes out of the study of the Indo-European languages, and Aryan is a word that comes out of Persia, out of Iran, and it's the noble people. So what the Nazis were doing was putting together a racist strain of linguistic thinking from the early 20th century, together with their racist thinking and their worship of the German folk. So it's a mixture of various um, ideologies and ways of thinking. So it's funny the, because I, I associate Aryan with a look, you know, as opposed to something that involved sure. language, for instance. Yeah. And that's because the Nazis used Aryan to oppose Semite. So they used Aryan to be anti-Semitic, but the roots of it are Indo-European linguistics. When I think about just what happens with racism and race, I think whacked. So the question <laughs> is, what is one of the most preposterous racial theories you came across in your research? There are some weird ones. <laughs> There's some weird, weird ones. ones. But my favorite is a contemporary of Jan Friedrich Blumenbach, who was his fellow faculty member at Göttingen. And uh, this is the second half of the 18th century when every scientist worth his salt was thinking of a way of classifying people. And his name is uh, Christoph Miners. And for him, there were two races, ugly and beautiful. And since he was in Germany, the people he had in mind as ugly, he looked to the East. And European race thinking often has the slobs in the role that we might expect to find Black people 
or native people. So there was ugly and beautiful. To this notion of beauty, I found it remarkable how much statues, how much plaster in art informs our sense of beauty and race. Yes. yes. Talk to me about how statues, how yes. sculptures yes. might influence our sense of what is superior and what is inferior. Yes. And uh, this has to do with art history, art history being one of the markers of civilization and being superior. And this is where Goethe comes in. He was one of the leaders in Germany of attaching his Germans to the lineage of the ancient Greeks. Some of them actually thought of it as biological. Certainly the ancient Greeks were considered the epitome of human beauty. But in the 19th century, somebody like Goethe couldn't go to Greece, which was part of the Ottoman Empire. So they went to Italy. And now the Greek statues they saw in Italy were copies of the Greek. And in Italy, they use Carrera marble, which is white. In Greece, they use various kinds of marble, most of which was sort of brownish, but it didn't matter because the statues were painted. So when somebody like Goethe brought back the ideal of ancient Greek statuary, first it was Carrera marble, and then it was reproduced in plaster in white. We have a misperception as a result of this, that those in the ancient world were lily white and that mm -hmm. that was an ideal to live up to. Right. Where, whereas these statues uh, at the time would have actually been painted to reflect right. some pigment. Right. And the classicists have done a wonderful job of writing about this and debunking because the white nationalists have glommed on to the idea of pure white beauty and white statuary. And they totally reject the idea that ancient statuary was painted, could be colored. And Turn the Page with Colorado Matters, the history of white people continues in the next half hour. Professor Painter shares some thoughts on recent comments by the president. He told a mostly white crowd that they had good genes, then referenced racehorses. I'm Ryan Warner here with CPR News. Together, we've been transitioning to a new normal, and we all have a lot of questions. Your support means you, your friends, and your neighbors will continue to have access to CPR's trustworthy coverage of today's stories. Your membership ensures that this valuable community resource for news and music remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. There are many ways to give, including monthly, as an Evergreen member. Thank you for your support at CPR.org. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Turn the Page is our reading circle. We invite you to read a book with us and then discuss it with the author. This time, to put America's racial reckoning into some context, we chose The History of White People by historian Nell Irvin Painter, who formerly led Princeton's program in African-American studies. 
The book was recommended to us by my special co-host today, historian Adrian Miller, who also leads the Colorado Council of Churches. For transparency's sake, I'll say that Miller joined CPR's board of directors not long after putting this book on our radar. Let's take another audience question. Diana Biggs of Canyon City. Do you see any impact of the scientific discoveries concerning DNA and the origins of Homo sapiens on the issue of races in this country? And I might just piggyback onto her question. I'm very curious how the mapping of the human genome also plays into our concept of race. Yeah. When the human genome got mapped uh, in the very early 21st century, there was a lot of talk about how we're all the same, we're 99.99% the same, and races are not that useful, and people have only been broken down into races, and we're all from Africa, it's just something recent, and we need to get over this race thing. And that went on for maybe three years. And then it came back because within the American ideology, A truth doesn't make sense unless it's broken down in racial terms. So if you want to give somebody an answer about, say, the effectiveness of medication or where people live or what kind of education works best for little kids, you have to have statistics according to race. For me, I'd like to know those statistics according to family wealth, but that's not how we think. We want our truth to be racialized. And so we snapped back after a few years of understanding what DNA meant in terms of human identity. And we went back to our our traditional ways of talking about who we are and who they are. This book was published in 2010, but one reason it feels so relevant a decade later is because the census is underway and we're marking the beginning of women's suffrage a century ago. Mm -hmm. I say the beginning because suffrage in its earliest days did not include all women. Uh, You write both about the census and suffrage. Of the census, you say it faces taxonomic meltdown. (laughs) And many Americans cling to race as the unschooled cling to superstition. I do think a theme of this book is the tension between sex, procreation, and our seeming need to classify one another. So on on one hand, we want to say, you're in this box, you're in that box. And on the other hand, we also know that people like to have sex with different people. And these these are at odds. This is a tension. It's very much a tension. Uh, I'll tell you what I learned as I worked on this book for so long. There are two things that all people do all the time. Migrate and... Are you mute? <laughs> You're muting yourself. <laughs> I am muting myself. You're trying not to drop the F-bomb. Let's say fornication. How's that? <laughs> How's that? So nobody is pure anything. There's no such a thing. It sounds trite to say there's only one race. It's the human race. But actually, I've come to think that isn't even very hopeful because to say there's a human race, there's there's such a thing as race. And if we're going to find our way through 
climate change, for instance, we're going to have to stop thinking in parochial terms like race and think about living, about continuing to live on Earth. Fran Berry in Highlands Ranch asks, there were so many times while reading your book when I thought, this happened in 1920 and it's still happening in 2020. For example, forced sterilization of immigrants. Do you find in a way that the more things change, the more they stay the same with some of this? Unfortunately, I can't but feel that way and pull my hair in this year of 2020 when we know that so many innocent Black people have lost their lives to police brutality, to to murder by the state. That seems like something that never ends. And the questioner mentioned forced sterilization. That is something that was pretty much put down after an outcry in the 1960s. But as we see, it's come back. It's come back uh, administered on women who were relatively powerless. So I guess the answer is we have to keep at things to at least hold down the injustice. I just want to note that the president on September 18th told a crowd of nearly all white supporters in Minnesota that they have good genes. And he referenced the racehorse theory. Quoting here, you have good genes. You know that, right? You have good genes. A lot of it is about the genes, isn't it? Don't you believe? The racehorse theory. You think we're so different? You have good genes in Minnesota, President Trump said. Is that an echo to you of things you've heard in history? Uh, Yeah. It's very early 20th century. What does it tell you about this moment? It tells me that some people think like the people who gave us racial superiority. I'm trying to get away from going straight to Nazis. But it's the kind of thinking, the kind of racialist thinking, biological thinking, that leads to very bad outcomes. Diane Elise D'Angelo in Denver says, would you comment further on the American obsession with race and how it might have deflected from discussions of class and revolution after World War I? I was fascinated by this idea, Diane says. Ah, um, the American obsession with race has to do with the foundings of the United States as a nation and the way the population was counted, ordered, and understood, and the way work got done and not paid for. So racial slavery is foundational to the way the American ideology of race has persisted for so long. After World War I, there was a chance to do a lot of um, positive change economically, And that was the case also after World War II. It it turned out somewhat better after World War II. It turned out better after the Great Depression of the 1930s. But after World War I, fears about racial degradation, about um, the American race uh, falling apart, 
was focused on poor white people in the South. And that's where eugenics really came to flower, the questions of forced sterilization. Buck v. Bell, which is 1925, the Supreme Court case that said it's okay to sterilize people against their will. It's a case that comes out of Virginia, and Buck was a white woman. Hmm. Sandy Novak in Boulder asks, what is white and black mean today in 2020? Depends on who you're asking, where you're asking. You said when, but it also means when was February, June, now, Kenosha, New York City, Atlanta, Denver. Depends on when, where, and for what reason. We make race every day. We make, we live race because race is one of the ways that Americans understand the meaning of life. But it's not something that you can see outside of people. It's something that is performed, something that is seen, something that is analyzed and taken to mean something else. But what do you want it to mean is partly up to you, how you live your life. It is action. It is not a biological concept. Adrian Miller, I just want to ask you a question about your own experience with race. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the reasons that you helped us choose this book, The History of White People, is that you wanted to explore for yourself further the idea that race is a concept. It's an invention. That may be so. But you as an African-American man and me as a white man, we live very different lives as a result of this construct. So something that might be invented becomes very real in your daily experience versus mine. How, how do you grapple with that idea, uh, yeah. especially after having read this book? Right. So I'm a hopeful person. And my hope is that we can one day live um, in a situation where we love each other, respect each other. And so to me, if something is artificial, that means it can be changed. And so I've been trying to understand the roots of it so I can figure out a path to a shared multiracial future. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's what I think about. But, you know, there's a lot of hurdles because uh, even in a place like Denver, people don't think that we have racism in Denver. But downtown Denver, I've been called the N-word various times. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just standing on the corner waiting for the light to change and somebody will drive by and say that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I worked in the White House for a while and I could not get a cab home because cabbies didn't see, oh, this guy's assistant to President Clinton. They just saw a black man waiting for a cab. So I think uh, a lot of this is gonna depend upon uh, understanding race, where it comes from, where it might lead us, but also hearing each other's stories. Um, I was just talking to somebody earlier today who after George Floyd, he said that a lot of white men, and these are men of status, called him up and said, does this stuff really happen in America? because it was so outside of their experience. And that's why we have to hear these stories and understand Hmm. what's really happening in this country. I also think it's why we have to be really careful with the phrase, the racial reckoning. What I have heard from many people of color who've come on the program is, this is white people's reckoning. Yeah. It's not a new um, reckoning for people of color. Go ahead, Professor. Can I say something here though? I I wanna add a word that we haven't mentioned and that is racism. Well, I've been talking about race, and I think 
some people may have been hearing racism. When I say that race is ideological, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as racism, that there's no such thing as injustice or racial injustice or segregation. All of those flow out of the ideology of race. They are not the same as race. And racism is real. Rudy Sanchez in Denver says, if there isn't a way of talking about health, wealth, education, etc., without talking about race, then what are your thoughts on how we should have conversations about social inequities? The, the way that most of us in the United States talk about health, wealth, education, and so forth is through race. If it were up to me, I would know about wealth. I would like to know where people live. I would like to know about other parts of their lives in addition to race. I think if we were more skillful in talking about wealth, we go a long way towards solving many of what we see as social problems and inequalities and injustices. Let's talk about wealth. Which has all sorts of implications for health and for education and for access and for voice mm -hmm. in, a, in a republic. But race has become a stand-in. Right. That's how we do it. Because it is our American ideology. Our ideology says, this is something real. We need to look to for answers. And I wish it didn't have within it the idea that the answers are only there. Judy Lucas in Denver says, how do we understand cultural identity within this discourse of race? Because we also talk, Professor, about black culture or mm -hmm. white culture. I say we understand cultural identity by looking at it and, and studying it. There's nothing within our race that says, oh, no, 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 you can't talk about culture. You can't talk about language. Of course you can. You can't stop with race. You keep going. You ask about people's gender. You ask about their politics, maybe. You ask about their language. You ask where their parents come from. You ask how they feel about wearing very short dresses. There's a lot to know about people besides their race. And there's nothing within race that says you can't find out. You can find out. Because we've been so race-obsessed in this country, there's no doubt that culture has grown up around that as well, that culture can be a reflection of this racial obsession. Yes, and it's very tiresome. What is tiresome and why? Because it's lazy thinking. The idea that there is one black community or one white community, uh, the idea that you can turn to the black community to find an answer about something, that's just lazy. It's just lazy. Yeah, I've been thinking about something. So, you know, you didn't write this book in a social vacuum. There were things happening. And when you wrote this book, we were early into the Barack Obama presidency. So here we are now in the latter years, at least of President Trump's first term. If you were to write this book now or over the past few years, how would it have been different, uh, especially maybe the final chapters? Do you think it would have been different? Yes. Yeah. 
Um, I have two answers for that. One is I have been thinking about American whiteness since Trump, and I have actually made an artist book. I was uh, in an artist residency in Italy until mid-March when we had to flee. And I made a book that goes up to mid-March, American Whiteness Since Trump. And it's on my website, nailpainter.com. The second thing I would say is that as I was writing in the early part of the 21st century, I felt that I did not have to take seriously white nationalism. I could say, I am setting aside white nationalism. I am going to concentrate on the intellectual history of the ideology and the construction of American whiteness. So I spent the pages of my book talking about science and scientists and scholars. What the Trump administration has done is pull together, is tighten the relationship between respectable power and white nationalism. So if I were writing this book today, I would have to include chapters on the emergence of white nationalism as a way of constructing um, white identity in the United States. Diane Snyder of Denver says, as a former public school teacher, as I read this book and think about how I would present these concepts and ideas to my high school students, I wonder if it would be possible to teach this seemingly radical look at our country and its thinkers without being fired. (laughs) That's a hard question that has to do with the politics of public education and depend very much on where you are. One thing that probably could be taught to high school students is getting them in their localities to see how whiteness functions or or how people talk about whiteness. So probably to talk to 10 people who say, oh yeah, I'm white, and then to ask them, well, what does that mean? You would get basically the social construction of race. Nell Irvin Painter, tell us about a Boston man named David Walker and the blow he struck against the notion that whiteness throughout history deserved to be judged positively. Positively. I was was really pleased to learn about David Walker in your book, The History of White People. Yeah, David Walker is one of many black intellectuals who critique the idea of whiteness. David Walker was writing in the 1830s and he wrote David Walker's Appeal. Uh, He was in Boston. He was an old clothes man. He was originally from North Carolina. A clothes man? Old clothes man. Sold used clothing. Right. Okay. Yeah. But he was a self-taught intellectual and uh, which is not unheard of, obviously. And he studied what the learned people had to say. He studied and critiqued Thomas Jefferson, for instance. And in Walker's appeal, he talked about how bloodthirsty white people have been uh, through the ages. So he read whiteness back before uh, the Enlightenment, before white people. And he talked about the ancient Romans and the Vikings and so forth. He took the idea of white supremacy and stood it entirely on his head, talking about the viciousness and the ignorance 
of white people. Lois Zeman in Ridgeway asks, if you were to write a sequel to the history of white people called The Future of White People, are there any predictions that you would make? Well, historians don't write the future. So I would not do that. I can make a prediction for the next um, three months, maybe, that white people are going to get a lot smarter about their society and about their identity as people, as people with race, and as people with moral responsibilities in the public sphere. That's my prediction for the next few months. Now, that strikes me as an optimistic prediction, one that seems to reflect that you think this moment really is a watershed. That's correct. I think this moment really is a watershed. But you notice that I didn't go very far out. Uh, I am old enough to remember the great and promising upheavals of the 1960s and the backlash that followed. So I, I wouldn't be surprised. I'd be dismayed. I wouldn't be surprised if there were a vicious backlash that undid the promises that I see. But I am encouraged by the massive undertaking of thousands of white people, hundreds of thousands of white people, maybe millions, to learn what had been hidden in our society and our culture. And I'm encouraged because we are now a generation or more through African-American studies. I noticed on my Facebook page that the University of Wisconsin is celebrating 50 years of African-American studies, and they've had a department for 50 years. And in those years, scholars have been doing research and writing and producing the scholarship that people need to learn about our history and our culture. Mm. So we have much more to draw on now, thanks to African-American studies. Related to that is we have access to many more African-American intellectuals who can be seen and heard in a way that did not exist in the 1960s. I'm so glad you make that point because when there is a department of African-American studies, it is not just about the students receiving the information. What you're saying is that adds a depth of scholarship. It adds a depth of speakers and Absolutely. voices. Absolutely. I think when people criticize academic departments as being too niche or why are there these studies and those studies and mm -hmm. that they fail to see how that adds to the canon exactly of understanding uh how many times have people said to me well the scholarship in african-american studies is american scholarship it needs to be say in the history department which is true it does but the way the academy is set up we have scholars who specialize and the specialized scholarship feeds in to the general scholarship. And in that way, the knowledge that starts in the specialized arena bleeds out into the society. So for instance, 
somebody like Ta-Nehisi Coates has been, his book, uh, Between the World and Me, has been on the New York Times bestseller list for 100 weeks. Hmm. Nothing like that happened in the 1960s. Professor, thank you so much for your time. Adrian Miller. You're very Miller. welcome. Great audience. Thank you, Adrian. I really like talking with you. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. We'll announce our next book sometime soon. And special thanks to Matt Hers, Kendall Smith, and Alexandra McMahon. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.